This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome and thanks to everyone joining us from around the world. I'm Garrett Felber. I use he, they pronouns, and I'm an assistant professor of African-American history at the University of Mississippi and one of the organizers of Study and Struggle. I'll be moderating tonight's conversation, Abolition as Study and Deconstructing Racial Capitalism, which is the first of four critical conversations this fall hosted by Haymarket Books. To see our future schedule and access events such as tonight after they've aired, you can visit our website, studyandstruggle.com and click the webinars tab. Study and Struggle is intended to connect and build radical community across boundaries, whether they be national borders or prison walls. Our four month curriculum was produced by a team of scholars, community organizers, and currently and formerly incarcerated people, including two of our panelists tonight, Rukia Lumumba and Stevie Wilson. It centers the interrelationship between prison abolition and immigrant justice, with a particular focus on the histories and ongoing freedom struggles in Mississippi and the South. We currently have over 100 reading groups around the world, a dozen of which are in prisons in Mississippi. And we hope that these groups become radical communities unto themselves, which are connected to one another through our pen pal program and to our larger community, which we come to when we come together once a month for conversations like these. Our critical conversations will discuss the key concepts for the upcoming month. And we're absolutely thrilled to have such a fantastic group of organizers tonight to launch our inaugural program. So now it's my pleasure to introduce our wonderful speakers tonight and begin our program. Rachel Herzing is the executive director of the Center for Political Education, a resource for political organizations on the left, progressive social movements, the working class, and people of color. Rachel has played roles as an organizer, activist, and advocate, fighting the violence of policing and imprisonment. Derica Purnell is a human rights lawyer, writer, and organizer. Since graduating from Harvard Law School, she has worked to end police and prison violence nationwide by providing legal assistance, research, and trainings to community-based organizations through an abolitionist framework. Derica is currently a columnist at The Guardian and deputy director of the Spirit of Justice Center at Union Theological Seminary. Stephen Wilson is a currently incarcerated Black queer writer, activist, and student. For over two decades, he was active in the ballroom community and worked as an HIV prevention specialist and community organizer. His work and practice inherit teachings from prison abolition, transformative and racial justice, Black feminist theory, and gender and queer liberation. Stevie is currently doing 30 days of solitary confinement as an act of retaliation by the prison. So I hope that you'll bear with us this evening as we patch together a combination of phone recordings and previous interviews with Stevie in response to the themes for this conversation. It's crucial that incarcerated people be centered in conversations about abolition. So we appreciate your flexibility as we try out this format. Since this event will be transcribed and sent to all of our inside study groups, I also wanna take a moment to say to our incarcerated comrades, we love you, 
We are studying and fighting with you, and you are here with us tonight. We'll also have a slide with Stevie's address during the conversation, and I know he'd love to hear from all of you out there, so please consider sending him a letter of support. And last, certainly not least, Rukia Lumumba is the Executive Director of the People's Advocacy Institute, co-lead of the Electoral Justice Project of the Movement for Black Lives, and a steering committee member and co-chair of legal committee of the Mississippi Prison Reform Coalition. She was also a co-producer of the incredible Black National Convention this last weekend, which I believe is still available to watch online if you missed it. And Rukia is one of our dear comrades in study and struggle as well, and we're so grateful to have her with us tonight. So we'll begin this evening, as we do in all of our conversations, by hearing one of our, from one of our Mississippi partners. So Rukia will start by sharing a bit about the Mississippi Prison Reform Coalition and their work in the state, and then we'll move on to the Q&A format. Hey, everybody. Thank you, Garrett. Thank you for having me. Thanks to everyone who's listening tonight, who's tuning in. Sincere thanks and appreciation to all of our loved ones and all of our folks inside, our friends, our family that are inside, behind cages. Thank you for letting all of us out here fight with you, fight for you in this struggle. Just sincere thanks and big appreciation to the entire team at the Mississippi Prison Reform Coalition. Again, my name is Rukia Lumumba. I am very thankful to be here tonight to share a little bit about the work we're doing here in Mississippi. Mississippi has the highest incarceration rate in the world. And on December 29th, 19, 2019, people incarcerated inside of Parchman Penitentiary and other Mississippi Department of Correction prisons led an uprising exposing horrific conditions and treatment inside of prisons. Weeks later, the Department of Corrections, I'm sorry, the Department of Justice opened an investigation into Parchman Penitentiary and several other Mississippi prisons. But the COVID-19 pandemic halted the investigation, resulting in continued abuse and neglect. In the last six months, 59 incarcerated people have died. There have been 382 confirmed COVID cases that we know of. And to make matters worse, Governor Tate Reeves of the state of Mississippi vetoed life-saving parole reform. The Mississippi Prison Reform Coalition was reactivated in January of 2020 in a resulting, resulting directly from the uprising of our folks inside. It is a group made up of incarcerated, formerly incarcerated people, families with loved ones that are currently incarcerated, advocacy organizations, and concerned residents demanding that the state of Mississippi immediately reduce the prison population, remove harmful conditions and policies that are harming our folks on the inside and restore humanity by closing Parchman Prison completely. Immediately, we are asking that the Mississippi legislator override the governor's veto of Senate Bill 2123. So we're asking everyone who's listening tonight to please take this call of action with us and call Mississippi state legislators and demand that they override the governor's veto of Senate Bill 20, not 2123, 
which have which would have provided life saving parole reform to many people currently incarcerated in Mississippi. I thank you all again for this opportunity and I look forward to continuing the conversation tonight. Thank you again, Garrett and the entire study and struggle community. Thank you, Rukia. So we're gonna begin um, our, our discussion portion and I'm gonna have each of the panelists um, begin by sort of self-introducing um, your work through study or what role study has played in your journey um, to abolition. And we're gonna begin with Stevie. Um, he, he was able to record a clip this last weekend talking about the importance of study for him with a comrade. So we'll start with that clip number one, John. All right, this is Stevie, and uh, first I want to thank Garrett and, Mr. and my fellow panelists for uh, giving me this opportunity to be a part of this event. Um, unfortunately, I can't speak live, so I'm going to record something uh, about study and its importance. And particularly, uh, it's been important to me uh, because it's changed my life. Um, I know that for me, studying was a way for me to figure out what was happening in my world what had happened in my community, and it gave me a way to also figure out how to change things for the better. Um, and I know that uh, it's something that that continues for us. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a one-place thing. And uh, for us here, um, we, we study with a purpose, and it's a transformation of ourselves, and then so that we'll be able to transform ourselves, our environment, our relations with other people. And, uh, and, and study for us doesn't occur just inside of a classroom. Um, but we always say it happens collectively, though. We believe that it happens collectively. You can't study just by yourself. You have to be engaged with other people or with other texts. And so we believe that study has to be a collective thing. Um, we also believe, once again, the purpose of it is to better yourself so that you're, you as a person and your relationships with other people and your environment becomes better. Um, and that's, that's important. It's something also that will not take place inside of these prisons if we don't do it because the Department of Corrections does not want us to study. The Department of Corrections does not want us to get better. And so if we want to do better and be better, we have to study. Um, and it's important for us to study the history of uh, people who came before us. Too often we found ourselves trying to reinvent the wheel. Uh, people had already done things and we could learn from them, but we didn't have the materials uh, to know that. We didn't have the information to know that. And so uh, now, uh, with the help of many people from outside, we're able to get materials of what had happened in the past and what's happening today. And this, uh, this knowledge uh, empowers us. And uh, we're able to learn from past movements, uh, past situations, people who've been locked up uh, before us and what they have done and what they've been able to accomplish and uh, where they failed, you know, and, and, and how we can actually attach ourselves to the work they've been doing and extend it um, and, 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 uh, and people come after us. So study has been a major activity for us and it's uh, been a major vehicle of transformation. Um, and so I think it's important uh, for all of us inside to take the time to study, to take the time to better ourselves, and I emphasize the point that it cannot be done without the help of people beyond these walls, outside the walls, because the Department of Corrections, no matter where, have one left. whether it's California, whether it's uh, Pennsylvania, whether it's South Carolina, they don't want us to study. So uh, please stay connected to people and help us study. Thank you.
So if we could start, um, I think, with you, Rachel, any responses to um, Stevie and sort of an introduction to your own life's work um, as it relates to study and abolition. Great. Thank you so much for having me uh, this afternoon. And thank you also to everybody who's participating in struggle, study and struggle um, inside and outside of, of prisons. I would agree with Stevie that I think um, study is a very important um, tool, not only to kind of dealing with our own conditions, but also for us to build community with each other. And I would also agree that it is best not done alone. I uh, direct an organization that is dedicated to working um, with other organizations and movements um, in order to use study as a tool for strengthening their work. So from that perspective, I think we would take an approach to the idea of prison industrial complex abolition, which is the kind of abolition I'll be talking about tonight. Um, we would take that approach that says that study um, that acknowledges um, the central role that study plays, no matter how well we do it, won't eliminate the prison industrial complex. So I'm gonna say that a slightly different way because I said it in a complicated way. No matter how good we are at studying, studying alone is not going to abolish the prison industrial complex. I think our orientation is more that study is essential to organizing for the, for the abolition of the prison industrial complex. And we need study to organize well. So I happen to be an overeducated person who has had the benefit of lots of formal education. And I'm also someone who's benefited from very good movement education. I'm not a fan, however, of study for its own sake. I think our best education is put in service of making change. So that change might be a change in our own conditions. We might need a GED to get a job, or we might need to be able to read to fill out a housing application or to apply for benefits. But if we're talking about study for prison industrial complex abolition, then our study needs to be in service of fundamentally transforming the conditions that sustain surveillance, policing, sentencing, imprisonment, and execution. Our study has to be put to work. So I'm not sure um, what I think about the frame of study, abolition as study, and that didn't make a ton of sense to me. I think I might say study for abolition or study for struggle so that we never lose track of the fact that change is our ultimate goal and not study for the sake of study. Thank you, Rachel. Derica, do you want to introduce yourself and your work through through um, kind of your experience with study and Sure, sure. Thank you again for the invitation, Garrett. It's so good to see you again, even though not in the flesh. Hi, Ricky. Ricky, I don't think I've seen you since I've seen Garrett in Mississippi. It was ages ago, ages ago. And Rachel, I'm so lucky the last person I saw 
Um, the last time I flew in Miami, had I known that would have been the last time I would have hugged you tighter. So thank you so much again for the invitation. Um, one thing that Stevie said that really stood out to me is that studying helps you become a better person. It helps you develop better relationships and it helps you develop a greater sense of yourself to the environment. So sort of this three pronged um, this three-pronged approach to, to how he and his comrades take on study. And it actually reminded me of when I was in law school. And I mean, most of my organizing has been through student organizing. I mean, way back in high school, the student sit-ins, the walkouts, like all of that was so much a part of my life. And I was a student organizer through college, but it wasn't actually until law school where I started to become politicized around political education. I hadn't heard this phrase. The first person I heard it said was Robin Kelly. And I was like, okay, so what's the political education list? Like, what's the political education starter kit? What do I need to read? And Robin said, well, I can't tell you what to read for your political education. You have to get with some people and decide what political education makes sense for your struggle. And I was like... So first you tell me that political education exists, but you're not even going to tell me how to use it, what to do with it. I got to figure that out. But I'm so, so, so happy that I was a part of a student movement with people who had politics much further left in mind at the time, with people who were politicized through other movements who knew that study was a part of their experiences. But the most of us were not there. Most of us were not there. If anything, we thought that our organizing demands were just the right thing. We figured we were smart enough. We figured we were nice enough. We figured that we were kind enough and curious enough. And our demands, they were just the right thing to do. I mean, why wouldn't Harvard Law School want to hire a diversity access and inclusion officer? Why wouldn't they want to hire more Black staff? And it wasn't until I went to South Africa and there were students who were um, organizing around their fallist movements. And they were literally reading and then sitting down and having plenary and making real time decisions based on what they were reading. And I was like, oh, I think maybe this is what Robin made me talking about. It was, it was the first time I was seeing study and struggle part of the same space. And so when I went back to school from that study abroad research project, we started reading. We developed a reading list with the help of a dream defender at the time. I can't remember her first name. I think her name is also Ricky if I need to double check. Um, so we created a reading list. We, we read books. The first thing we read was um, an essay that Robin Kelly wrote since he inspired us to think more critically about this. And long story short, we end up throwing our demands away. We said, these demands are trash. You know, it, it wasn't enough to be good or to be nice or to be kind or to have ideas that made sense. We needed a political analysis. We needed to call it to question the role that Harvard was playing in society. We need to call in the question that Harvard was playing in the community of Cambridge and in Boston. We needed to call into question our relationship to the institution as students, as Black students, as queer students, as students from poor and impoverished and class exploited, exploited backgrounds. Our entire analysis shifted. So we went from wanting a critical race theory program to implementing our own critical race theory program and invite, inviting critical race theories. 
And we ultimately created the only space on campus where anyone could teach. It didn't matter if you were part of the dining services team, a custodial worker, if you were a student, if you were a clinical faculty, we created the environment that we thought that we could just convince Harvard to become. And that was so, so, so transformative for me. And so now when I talk to law students, I try to say, yes, it's important to learn constitutional law. I guess the Constitution is important. That's, that's what you're supposed to graduate law school, trying to defend. But the most important thing you can do is find your people and start to cultivate a political analysis. Because what you think may be good or may feel intuitive, you've been socialized to believe that. And now you have to do the deep work of critically rethinking all of what made you possible and to do that with other people. And I'll stop there. Thank you, Derica. Rikia, take us through your journey a bit. So, you know, I, I first of all, I just have to say thank you for this this panel because honestly, like Rachel, and you know, I just truly just have followed your work for a very long time, and just like you know, you are one of our you know guides in this um, in this movement, and just really really grateful for you. Um, and then Derica, you know, I just love all that you're doing, and I appreciate you. Um, and and Garrett, thank you for continuing to center Mississippi. Um, oftentimes we don't have that. And so I really appreciate that. Um, so for me, you know, I grew up in an activist, Black nationalist household. And, um, you know, so my my parents were intentional about letting us, like, you know, learn on our own um, as opposed to um, forcing material on us. But I had a privileged experience around academia, around study in terms of just being able to sit and overhear conversations about um, particular books and about strategies and theories and and this, that and the third. And and so I recognize that. And so I, I come into this work having grew up and literally from in the womb like hearing these things over and over and over again. So to some extent, I don't know what it is to be without having some type of analysis around our freedom and around abolition and around what that kind of looks like. Um, and, and that's just my reality. But I think what always struck me and, and was my biggest concern um, and continues to be my concern is our ability, including my own ability, to study, to recognize the struggle and be in it, and then to act, right, to experiment. And oftentimes, for me, it's that action and that experimentation and then continued study, like realizing it's a, a, a circular process that we have to actually experiment and continue to study at the same time. Yeah. That that I'm still trying to push myself to consistently do. And so, you know, that's the challenge that I often talk about with others is, is how do we create or begin to really lay the foundation for the transformative systems that we want to see in the future for our view of what abolition may look like in our future? Um, if we don't just go ahead and jump out there and do it and experiment a little bit. 
And so for me, the purpose of study has become the purpose of actually also experimenting. So like taking that journey. Um, And so, you know, um, this conversation is really rich for me right now um, because it is further making me challenge that notion and really engage deeper in study and engage deeper in study with um, a recommitment to engage deeper in study with our community as well um, here in Jackson around how do we engage in that study in ways where everybody feels that the information is accessible? You know, um, how do we, you know, do huge film screenings of books that we're reading, right? To make it accessible for folks who aren't going to be able to sit down and read a 400 page book, you know, um, in a month or so, right? Because literally they're tired after getting off of work um, or for a myriad of other reasons, right? You know, literacy right in Mississippi is the illiteracy right in Mississippi is super high. And how do we actually decrease that and do something like Cuba did with the literacy project? Right. Like, how do we begin to make it more accessible for our folks? I'm going off into a tangent, so I'm going to slow down and I'm going to stop now. But for me, the study piece is about sharing um, that study process with community, making it more accessible and then experimentation. And so Mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you, Rukia. Um, so I think we're going to hear another clip from Stevie um, that I think speaks a little bit to Derricka's point about kind of wanting this, the desire when you hear about political education for a blueprint. Um, so Stevie's going to lay out some of the different groups that he participates in inside. Um, and this is from an interview that he did on abolitionist study with uh, Rust Belt Abolition Radio in Michigan. So I want to give them a shout out for letting us use this clip. Um, but I would love to hear from all of you a little bit about um, some of the nitty gritty of how you've structured study groups, not just what you read, but how how were you in community? Um, what were the ways that you sort of got, you know, to these issues of, um, of access, of building community through study? Um, so we'll listen to that clip first. And this is clip number two. So tell us a little bit more about the these evolution study groups inside that, that you help run. Can you tell us more about what you'll do and yeah? Well the first one we was called nine nine seven one, obviously references to Attica, and it was a general uh abolition study group. We started with something like uh our prisons obsolete by Angela Davis. And what we do is we would do a chapter reading and then we would come back and we have discussion questions. Uh we focus a lot on definitions because this is the first time many people were uh hearing about abolition. You know, we used to word with our prisons, they thought we were crazy. You know, the first thing could have mind, what are you gonna do with the murders and the rapists and things like that? And so we had to really talk about uh basic definitions and things like safety and community and things like that. So that was the largest group because it was more generalized. We also had a group called Circle Up, which is a transformative justice group. Most of the men there were under, under the age of 25, about 23 young men, and they were doing a program called Circle Up, and they were talking about transformative justice, how we applied inside the prison and in our families and our communities. SAS was uh, the pre-abolitionist group, and that was because it was – that group we started because it was sometimes difficult to talk about those type of issues in 9971. Right, so we had a group uh, that went through uh, captive genders and career injustice and, and uh, works like this from an abolitionist perspective. And then we also had a uh, bow type books 
uh, book club, which ten prisoners were involved in, and uh, both types of books, it used to be Nation's book, would send in a, a book each month with some discussion questions, and we would meet, it's like a book club. That has been taken over by Haymarket Books now. So here at Smith, uh, at Fayette, we're going to be doing it, and Haymarket Books will be providing the books for us. So we're happy to have that uh, program still continue. That's awesome. I mean, can you tell us more about So, Rachel, we'll start back with you again. I guess just returning to this question about how you structure study um, in, through the Center for Political Education, and, and maybe if you would speak to also the, something that you touched upon in your previous remarks about how this isn't, we're not talking about neutral study. Um, we're talking about something that's used to build power. So how do we use study as a way to build power? Yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of what Stevie laid out in, in his response are also things that I've experienced over my time in organizations doing um, political education, but also that we use at the Center for Political Education as well. Um, developing shared language, I think, is really, really crucial. And that's not to tell everybody that you have to speak exactly the same way. But I do think that it matters that there's a shared understanding of what we're getting at. And that also there's an acknowledgement that the language that we use has, has power, but also can do certain kinds of work. So as one little example of that, that Derricka has been abused by me recently around is I want everybody to stop using the word officer in reference to COs and in reference to cops. They do not deserve that kind of deference. So do not call them an officer. But to understand the political nature of that language, right? Or to understand that everything is not everything when it comes to abolition, but there are very specific kinds of politics that that entails. And so I appreciate Stevie raising that. And I want to come back also to something that um, Rukia mentioned that I think is really, really important. I'm grateful that you brought it up, Rukia, which is experimentation. Right. So if we are developing a praxis, if we're studying and then applying and studying and applying, our practice gets better, but also our analysis gets better. Um, and kind of moving back and forth, I think, and understanding that our, what we learn is only as useful as what we are able to make it do, and that what we do has to be informed by an understanding of what's possible. And I don't mean like what the state tells us is possible, but I mean like developing a hypothesis about the conditions that we're living under and where we want to go and having that inform rather than, as Derricka was saying, we're just good kids with good ideas. Um, So we do study at the Center for Political Education um, in a bunch of different ways. We do some formal study groups, like read a thing, discuss it, watch a thing, discuss it. We do some classes where, like Derricka recently came to a class that we held, where there's a curriculum and we, you know, spend time trying to go over core concepts and we have guest speakers. Um, 
we also do things that are a little different. So we'll show films or we'll um, have bring together organizations to be in strategic conversation together. And to my mind, those conversations are also places where political education happens because we're having to articulate what we think we're hearing from others. Hopefully we're engaging in principled struggle and that makes us fight smarter, I think, um, which to my mind is the goal. I want everybody to get more of what we want and need. And so we need to fight as smart as possible to be able to do that. Um, the last thing I think I'll say about that um, is that um, I think that there's a way that, um, I don't know, like back and forth um, study that I've done with people inside also has been um, through maybe correspondence or maybe through phone calls or something like that. And some of that has been, um, you know, we read something together and we discuss it. Some of the way that Stevie was described also just been like, I think this thing, tell me what you think about that. And I do think that having conversations with people with whom you are either already politically engaged or you'd like to be politically engaged goes a very, very long way for some of the reasons I was talking about before. So I'll, I'll leave it there. That might not be quite as nitty gritty as you hoped, but I bet Rukia and Derica both have really good things to say about that too. All right, Derica, you have to get nittier and grittier then. <laughs> it's on you. Nitty and grittier. Okay, well, I'm wearing my Advancement Project t-shirt um, because when I got out of law school, I told you I became like a political education zealot. I said, oh, everyone has to go and know about this political education thing. We got to take this show on the road. And so my supervisor, then Thomas Marandesa, who's good friends with Rachel, he said, okay, you know, this is your first job out of law school. You know, what's the plan? Like, what is it that you want to take on? And I said, political education. We have to do political education in the Justice Project to make sure that we have an analysis. And he was just like, what? It was so, so, so funny. But over time, I'm so grateful that he gave me space to do that, not only at Advancement Project, but with my partner site. And so I'm born and raised in St. Louis. I'm from St. Louis. I consider it my, you know, my hometown. Very proud of it. And I had a chance through Advancement Project to go back to St. Louis to work with organizers there and through Action St. Louis on the Closer Workhouse campaign around by Bob, and then with the Ferguson Collaborative with on the Department of Justice consent decree with the Ferguson Police Department. And one of the first things that we did was political education, because if we're going to work towards building a campaign, the number one question, how do we know that this, where do we, where's our political commitments? Where are our principles? What is our shared vocabulary? So when I started talking about abolition and everybody was like, whoa, 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 pump the brakes, what are you talking about? It's like, oh yeah, we probably should read and talk to some people. And so one of the first things that we did in Ferguson was read a book about policing. 
And so we were trying to figure out, okay, if we're going to have a consent decree whose primary purpose is going to attempt to improve the police department and the people in this room, the organizers in this room have a spectrum of what they believe about policing. You have people who want community policing, whatever that means, and you have people who are abolitionists. And so how do we start developing an analysis to figure out how to approach this consent decree? And ultimately, we decided to focus on parts of the consent decree. You know, after our political education, parts of the consent decree that remove harm from people who live in Ferguson. So we focus on getting cases dismissed, for example. We focus on having, you know, fewer interactions between police officers and civilians. We focus on giving feedback on the use of force policies within the police department to, you know, increase the number of touches, you know, that they could not do when they came into the police counter. So we started using our, we started to mold and shape our analysis around the institution of policing. And then that helped inform our organizing. The Close the Workhouse, the very first political education conversation that we had was around abolition. And it was because people who were a part of the campaign really loved and, you know, just had such a special place in their heart for the work that Access St. Louis was doing, but weren't quite convinced that we could close the jail. And so the first session that we did was, what about the murderers? What about the rapists? And we put scenarios all across the wall and we just walked through each one of those scenarios. And then not only did we ask questions like, what about the murderers and what about the rapists? I asked people in that room, why do people kill people? Why do people kill people? Because what about the murderers doesn't even get to the heart often what people are afraid of. So then we came up with these grand lists of why people kill people. And then we talked about ways to prevent that or ways to respond after it happened. And so from that campaign, having a group of people who were half skeptical about the project of abolition, half curious to them being a fully fledged abolitionist campaign that ultimately closed down that jail, it felt it felt like one of the most exciting things that has ever happened to me, probably every, anyone in that organization. And so there was a lot of debate, a lot of confusion initially, a lot of concern about safety and about whether this was feasible, was it possible? And now that jail is closed because of political education, because of experimentation, and because people who were formerly incarcerated there and people who were committed to instruction did all of that to make sure it, it closed down. And so I hope that's nitty and gritty enough. Um, I'm trying to think of there anyone. I think, yeah, I, I think that's the nitty. It's, it's no real dirt there, no drama, but that's, that's I hope, hopefully that helps. Thank you. Yeah, Rukia, go ahead. That was great. Thank you so much, Derica. Yeah, sorry. That was, that was, that was great. Thank you. It actually um, made me think of, you know, um, the work that we're doing because we really want to see Parchment Prison closed down. And um, with the Mississippi Prison Reform Coalition, that's our that's our goal. And then to attack all the other prisons. Um, 
But I think that, you know, the process that Derica talked about is really important. Um, and when we look at uh, the demand for parchment to close, it comes from a similar process of folks inside and folks outside really studying the history of parchment and understanding its, its uh, existence as a place of torture and abuse for Black people um, since its inception. Um, so Parchment Prison what, is an 18,000 acre plantation in Mississippi, similar to Angola Prison in Louisiana, which is also an 18,000 acre plantation. Um, but Parchment, um, before Reconstruction, served as a plantation. Um, it served as a place, an institution of slavery. Immediately after Reconstruction, it was turned into a, a, a workhouse and a prison. And it has existed as a prison ever since. The last time, you know, in studying parchment, and really a lot of our study has come from um, guidance from folks inside, um, you know, looking at the space that we, we used to, we used to um, have our meetings, our, our regular meetings around um, public safety inside of the COFO building here in Mississippi, which is a building um, that was erected to honor the, the coalition of um, civil rights groups that came together to really create some serious change in Mississippi. And so we used to meet in there and inside of there, there are like these murals um, that honor the um, work that had happened in the past. And so one of the first murals that you see is this mural of Parchman Prison. And it's a mural that shows an article that indicates how, you know, young folks primarily were incarcerated in Parchment Prison and suffered a lot of the similar abuses that folks are currently experiencing right now inside of Parchment Prison and other Mississippi prison um, prisons right now. And they were incarcerated because of their protests in the 1960s and 70s. And I mean, we're talking about abuses of not being allowed to shower, abuses of not being provided food, abuses of not having drinkable water and not being given drinkable water, abuses of sewage existing inside of the cage, inside of their cell, um, conditions of denial of medical treatment, under staffing and unqualified staff, right? Um, these are literally exactly the same conditions of abuse that folks are currently expressing inside of parchment and are being retaliated against, similar to our brother Stevie, who has been retaliated against for speaking out right now. Um, you know, and so I think, you know, when we when when talking about the intricacies of study, um, getting into the weeds of it, is that studying our experiences are also is also very important. And having those real conversations that Rachel talked about is critical as well. Um, because I think that that exposes a lot sometimes. Um, last story I'll share too is the importance of allowing study to also be centered in people who are directly impacted by the harm we're trying to cure. One of the things I learned throughout my time growing up here in Mississippi is that oftentimes as advocates, we think we know the answer because we know where we wanna go, right? But what I've experienced is that when we stop and just listen, 
when we really just stop and listen to what people are saying they want, we actually began to realize that how we get to our North Star is not exactly the same way as that as we envision, because our people may not be right where we are at that time. So, for example, we always give this example um, when talking about community led governance, um, which I think is directly tied to abolition. Right. Because it's a, it. And we can talk about that another time. But, you know, um, but when we when I think about this, this is, you know, here in Jackson, we talk about potholes. Right. Anybody who comes to Jackson, you know, we got potholes. And when my father became um, mayor, uh, he, you know, used the People's Assembly format. My father, Shokwe Lumumba, he was the late mayor of Jackson, Mississippi revolutionary human rights attorney, amazing human being, like dedicated his life to all of the work that that we're all doing right now. Um, he, uh, when, when creating his platform actually to run for mayor, um, he had a people's assembly. And in the assembly, folks were like, yeah, 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 man, you keep talking about this liberation, this freedom, this self-determination, but to be honest, I'm just concerned about my ability to get to work because every time I ride down the road, I hit a pothole. And when I hit that pothole, it breaks my rim. And now I got to get my rim fixed and I got to get a new tire. And now I'm late for work. And now for some folks, literally are now unemployed because they didn't get to work, right? And so we began to realize that like we can't just move rapidly pass the existing complexities that are causing the problems in the first place that are preventing us from living our best lives, right? And so when we're talking about study, we gotta like talk about study deeply about our all, our own experiences and how we actually also um, uh, use those experiences to, to chart the, uh, the course for our journey towards abolition and our freedom. Um, and, and, and so, I hope that made sense and was clear. And if not, just ask me a follow-up question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. I, I I love that story. And I think that's really um, actually segues us to the next clip from Stevie, because one of the things that he talks about a lot is translation. And in a letter to me recently, he wrote something um, that I thought was really heartbreaking because we've talked a lot about translation and he said to me, you know, I don't actually like doing the work of translation inside. It's something I do out of necessity. He's talking about, you know, taking texts and sort of breaking them down. And he said, I do that because the people inside are written about and they can't access the way that they're being written about. And so he talks in this clip a little bit about um, the importance of translation of accessibility of, of study. And the other thing he talks about is this idea of abolition uh, as practice, not as a place that we're sort of working to, but something that is ongoing and, and um, in process. So we'll play that clip and then you can sort of pick either of those questions of translation and accessibility or of abolition as presence or praxis. So this is clip number three, John. What I want, what I try to explain to people when I say abolition, and this is what I, this is why I ask that question, because I want them to understand that abolition is not something that's always in the future. I was explaining to them that if someone, a white 
wealthy person, right, breaks the law, okay, what's the chance of this person being put in prison? It's not going to happen. Say this guy has a, a substance abuse problem, and uh, this guy, he's 21 years old, he's white, he's out of the suburbs, has a substance abuse problem, he breaks into his neighbor's house, burglarizes the house, and gets caught, and gets locked up. Probably going to keep him locked up. No, they're probably going to send him to some, you know, some, some drug treatment place. That's what's going to happen. That's abolition. That's abolition. That's abolition. Instead of, instead of locking him up, we're going to see where you need to be, treatment. You see, and that is abolition also. So I'm trying to explain to people that, no, the, the solution isn't always called the police, isn't always a jail or a prison. There are other ways that we can deal with harm. And so when I explain it that way to them, then they see, oh, it's here. Abolition is here now, just that everyone doesn't get a chance to be a part of that process. How can we open it up to everybody? How can we open it up to the person is getting high and then committing crime to, to get high? Then maybe we don't need to lock that person up. That's not the issue. We don't just call the police and lock them up. You know, maybe we can get them help with their something to be problem. And that's abolition. You know, and so my task a lot of times in here is actually translating the work for the people in here. And that's one of the areas I think that we're not doing too, too, too well in. I don't think we're doing too well in that area. Stuff that's actually being published, you understand what I'm saying? I don't think that it's actually accessible to a lot of people who are behind the wall. Okay, great. Um, and I'm just going to throw a curveball and start with Derica. <laughs> so Rachel doesn't always have to respond immediately. Can you give me the question? Because that's yeah, a so, curveball. I'm not even on the field. What's the what's the, what's the question? <laughs> no, we just that's the curveball. No, um, either you know this question of what is abolitionist practice practice look like? So for people maybe who are new to abolition and think about it really as maybe this utopian um, location that we're working towards, how do we see abolition as something that we do in our daily lives? Um, or this question about translation, how do we make study um, accessible and, and why does it matter who we study with, not just what we study? Wow. Okay. Okay. Um... Translation or its practice. So I'll do. I'll try the translation part. I'll attempt it um, because I try to think of myself as a writer, and sometimes I get things wrong and things are lost in translation a lot. One thing that I really wish I had not written in that in the piece I wrote for the Atlantic called "How I Became an Abolitionist" was this part where I talked about when I first heard the word abolition and I said it, it felt white and utopic and ever since then I've been reading more about utopia and socialist utopia and I reread freedom dreams since then and I was just like no I wasn't trying to be critical of utopia we need utopias we need to think and dream and imagine new ways of being and I shouldn't have been as I wasn't intentionally being dismissive when I when I wrote that. I was trying to speak to a, a way that a lot of people also feel similarly about abolition when they first hear that it's this utopic idea without actually understanding the importance of utopias. The same way that people dismiss anarchy right now is just oh, anarchy, anarchy, without actually grappling with the politics of what anarchy is. And so I just... I don't want to give Utopia a bad rep because we need Utopia so much to help and guide our work. 
And so I think that translation is important. One thing that came up in, in Stevie's um, comments that is, I am excited that it's a debate within the abolitionist community. I don't know which community it is, but it's a debate that I'm hearing right now. And I'm figuring out sort of how to think about it. And so it's what abolition is and what abolition is not. And so there was this piece that came out sometime this summer critiquing the idea that abolition is the suburbs, right? And then to hear Stevie say, well, abolition is someone in the suburbs getting treatment and not going to jail. And then thinking about Maya Schumar's new book that's critical of mandatory treatment for people who need help. So there are all these conversations and disagreements happening among abolitionists or people who study the politics. And I think that's really exciting because so often the conversation is, are you a reformer? Are you an abolitionist? Are you super, super, super woke TM? Or are you trying to undermine the system and support the man? Well, I'm actually more excited about in terms of the translation are the strands of disagreement and discourse and debate that's happening around these sets of politics. The community policing is a, another one. There are people who consider themselves to be abolitionists who are excited, not, oh Jesus, not community policing, community control of police, which is not community policing. I saw Rakia's face. No, 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 no. Just in case, just in case. Just, no, no, not that. There's a debate happening about whether community control of police is abolitionist. And I believe there was a, a, a paper that I actually still need to read saying that, no, it is not abolitionist. So these debates about the future that we're trying to build, the future that exists right now, I think that's really exciting. One thing that I say to the community control of police is abolitionist is that there are already communities in control of police. There are lots of communities in control of police right now. And if you say, well, those are just white communities, you can go to any of the countries in Latin America. You can go to a lot of the countries in Africa. There are systems of oppression that fall along racial lines. So it's not as simple as we just need people of color to be in charge of police in order to establish the institution. And so I am excited about those debates that are happening. I feel like I'm not exactly answering your question, but that's all I was excited to, to share, listening to Stevie and now thinking about, you know, what excites me about, about the conversation. And I hope that people continue to disagree and to push because the other side of political education is not that we're all agreeing, right? There was a class that I took this summer with the People's Forum, and I took it with Dream Defenders, the Afro-Socialist Caucus in DSA, and Fem Power. And one thing that the instructor said is that we are here to build conceptual alignment as organizers. That's what we're here to do. That didn't mean agreement. It didn't mean that we all had to think the same thing. Is that we need to build conceptual alignment. So as our movements build power, we understand where we're coming from and how to relate to each other's organizations. So part of that political education, especially around abolition, but for so many other areas of, of struggle and political ideology, is the need for conceptual alignment and not total agreement. And I'm happy that people are taking principle uh, disagreement stances and saying, no, they're laying claim to contest it. So I'm excited about that. 
Okay, so, we're gonna take. I'm gonna take a brief five seconds just for the for the translation team to catch up. And now, Rukia, I want to hear. I want to hear what you have to say about this. Yeah, absolutely. I also do some looking at our translation team. I want to make sure that they're ready for us. So, um, yeah, I mean, thank you, Derica, because so I just okay. So I'm going to answer your question, but I also just want to just agree with Derica around. Um, you know, having police of color, having black police does not mean that it's better policing or having police that come from your community does not mean that the system of policing is now better. Right. Um, we can look even at Jackson, Mississippi. We are an 85 percent black city with over 90 percent of the police force is black. And we still have police violence. Right. So the system of policing itself is something that we're looking at. It's not about if the faces are black or white or brown or red. It's about a system that is actually inherently ineffective and does not protect our communities. And so, you know, just thank you, um, Derica. And it's similar to the, the whole conversation around correctional officers and the system of prisons. Right. Um, Rachel had mentioned earlier, like, we need to stop giving them the power of calling them officers. And I do want to know, Rachel, what do you suggest we call them? Because I do want to stop giving them the leadership of, of calling them officers. And I do want to call them something else. Um, you know, my mentor over here, Denise Coleman, who has um, spent 38 years in prison, who recently got out two years ago, um, she calls them police. <laughs> So sometimes I just get confused if she's talking about the police outside or the police inside, but she definitely calls them police, right? And so like, you know, I don't know if that, if, you know, maybe that's the term we should be using, but I'm, you know, like I'm, I'm really open to learning and, and, and using the right terminology because I think that's important. One of the things that Stevie um, mentioned in his, um, in his um, talk was this idea around giving examples of what abolition is. And so like the example of, you know, someone getting drug treatment instead of going to a prison is a form of abolition. Um, for me, you know, like I really appreciated that comment because I think that it's both translation and practice to some extent, and maybe I'm not answering the question right. But for me, it, it, it because a lot of my work is literally just organizing community around the idea of something different than what we're currently um, experiencing and then providing those resources to help them make that a reality um, is being able to help folks understand the words I'm using so that we have similar definitions and vision. And so as much as it's true in the debate community around abolition, right, which oftentimes is made up of a lot of advocates who have been studying for a long time, the terminology and definition of terminology and accessibility of terminology is just as important um, in terms of our day-to-day -day organizing with folks. And so I think the way Stevie approached defining abolition for me was really helpful because it gave me another way to 
explore how do I express the work of abolition, right? Um, You know, because it's true. It is creating something different that is not based on punishment. And um, so I'm not really answering the question and I'm kind of like all in my thoughts about it as I'm talking, but I just want to hold on to that because I I do think that was an important um, comment. And Rachel will probably really answer the question for you. So I'll throw it to Rachel. <laughs> Sorry. Empty promises is what I would call that. <laughs> um, so I'll start by saying, um, answering your question, Rakia, which is not, it's just what I say. And I think there are lots and lots of ways of um transforming our language, right? So we don't all have to um, use different language, but the the point for me is that it's important that we're mindful of whose language we're using and toward what ends, right? So I say guards and cops to make the distinction between people who police cages and people who police people outside of cages. Um, and, uh, but I think police works in both of those situations too. Some people like other kinds of things, you know, that that, um, aren't even as genteel as guards and cops, right? But um, the point there, I think, is more about kind of what power, what deference are we giving them? um, Whose language are we using there? You know, I, I don't ever think calling anything correctional is appropriate. So that's a good reason to strike that one out. The same way that, you know, I don't think it's appropriate to call people offenders, right? So, so again, it's like not to kind of censor everybody, but to put like a, you know, put a bug in your ear around like, can we be more thoughtful about how we're communicating as part of our political study, but also as part of our political practice? Um, so maybe I'll talk more about practice. Um, you know, and I found myself having a similar reaction to Derricka in terms of Stevie's example. And I wish that he were here because I would love to, you know, be more engaged with him and, and to hear more about that idea. Um, but I appreciate kind of where Rukia took that because I do think that that example is it kind of takes us through translation and into practice, right? And I think now's an interesting period to be thinking about those kinds of examples. Like what do we mean when we say alternatives to imprisonment, for instance? Because we're also in a period where we're being pressed to think about alternatives to the kinds of things that um, we use currently police for, right? Um, And we know that all different things are not equal, and we know that they're not all good. So for instance, just putting somebody in coercive treatment, that's locked down. It might be treatment, but it's still, if it's locked down, it's still locked down. Um, Even if it's not locked down, if it's coercive, then it doesn't do the work, the abolitionist work that we hope life-affirming projects and services will do, which is to help people make the kinds of transitions that they want to make to shift the kinds of conditions that lead people to engage 
in, you know, behavior that some might call antisocial or some might call criminal or whatever, the stuff that Derricka was getting at earlier. Um, I would always rather see people who are seeking treatment get treatment rather than life in a cage. But I also want that treatment to not be um, debasing or to not be physically harmful to them or to not, you know, I want it to be affirming and I want it to be based on the kinds of goals that they set for themselves and they set for their loved ones. And I think that that's really what abolition is about. You know, I think it's very popular these days to talk about abolition as a, as an affirmative um, politics. And I agree that it is. I never want to lose sight of the fact that my ultimate goal is the elimination of the prison industrial complex. But at the same time, it is not only a negative politic. I think it is an affirmative politic. It's about how are we also creating the kinds of conditions that we want that are important for us to have not just life, but beautiful, healthy, fulfilling life that is impossible under the current conditions where we use the prison industrial complex as a response for everything from a cat in a tree to, you know, crisis of homelessness, for instance. Um, so the practice of that, to my mind, is really about that experimentation to come back to experimentation and for us to also be gracious with en enough with each other to allow us time and space to experiment and maybe even to fail at our experiment, but to try again and not just say, well, abolition is a failed project because they couldn't get it right a hundred percent the first time. Um, and that practice, I think, is showing up and saying, this is what we actually want. This is what we think we need to be able to live well with each other and in right relation to the natural world. Um, and we need time and space and knowledge to test that out. And so in the treatment example, what does life affirming self-determined, you know, like treatment that builds people's capacity to live well in relationship to other people in the natural world look like? Or what does, um, you know, I don't know, traffic direction that's not led by um, an armed agent of the state look like? So, I mean, I think there are lots of different ways that we can practice that. If I can say one more thing, I'm sorry to go on, but one other thing just popped into my brain that I think um, is another one of my little hobby horses. So I also think that the, um, how to say it, that our abolitionist politics need to be aimed at changing all of our conditions. So I'm not particularly interested in kind of like everyday abolition, like I didn't punish my kids, so I'm an abolitionist because of this thing that I just said earlier, which is about the ultimate goal of eliminating the prison industrial complex, right? So if your act of not punishing your kids 
is attached to some bigger practice you're trying to build with parents kind of across your family or across your neighborhood or whatever that might be to shift how your kids understand the nature of punishment. That's a very different thing than, you know, I just did this one thing in my household. So now I'm good to go. Call me an abolitionist, right? Or I made a victory garden in my backyard and now we have a lot of pickles or something, you know, but I mean, there's lots of different kinds of things that people are attributing abolitionist politics to. And I, you know, I'm not trying to censor what people do or police what people do. But my, my question about that is what are we building? What is the practice that we are developing such that we are absolutely able to eliminate the use of surveillance, policing, imprisonment, uh, sentencing, and execution? What, and what do we need to do? What kind of skills do we need to build over time? What relationships, what infrastructure do we need? And to my mind, all of those things together are the practice of doing abolitionist politics. Thank you so much for that, Rachel. I think that was that was great. Um, I'm gonna we're we're getting a little tight on time, and I want to make sure we have uh, time for Q and A. So I'm gonna move to um, a piece that Stevie recorded in June, kind of in response to the uprisings. And Rachel, you wrote a really powerful um, piece this summer, "Political Education in a Time of Rebellion," that I thought was. Um, you know, really timely. And, and you wrote political education isn't just education about politics. It's education for the specific purpose of making our politics more powerful. It is frontline work. And I thought that was a really wonderful encapsulation of kind of the relationship between study and struggle in, the, in that moment. So, um, so we're going to play clip number five, John, which is um, this recording of Stevie kind of talking about, I think, um, the promise of this historical moment of uprisings, as well as some fears, and and he'll touch a little bit upon what you just did about everyone's an abolitionist now, and then we'll let you all have kind of closing statements. So uh, it, it, I'm thinking to myself, well, has he done any research? You know, and I was reading a piece today from Dylan Rodriguez, and Dylan talks about how so many people today, particularly students, are claiming abolition even though their politics and what they're calling for are not abolition. They're, they're really anti-racist police reform or some sort of progressive decarceration where you know, they deserve and get out of prison and the other guys stay there because they're really bad guys. And we find that a lot of people think that they're upon abolition, but they're really not. Parents is teaching them what abolition really is. And at the end, he says, you know, you have to be willing to stand up and say, I'm abolitionist, and say that to Sojourn of Truth ghost. Say that to her ghost. Can you actually stand in front of them and the people who've laid their lives for this and done this and say, look, I'm, I'm abolitionist. Can you really look at them and say that? That mean what you're calling for? It's amazing to me. It's just amazing. You know, uh, the only thing that takes the time is a little bit of research. And I hope that um, I, I ask you guys, I feel ask people in Chicago also to uh, to get Miriam's peace, Miriam Cowell's peace, and so that we will understand that here is someone uh, that we know who's an abolitionist. Okay. And, it's, and, and respected and known, and it's done so much in the movement, and it's, these are things we should not be uh, supporting. And here we have somebody else coming out sideways saying, hey, we should we should be things useful one. Come on, who are we going to listen to, Miriam or this guy? You know, who is this guy? You know what I mean? So uh, it's, just, it's just amazing to me 
how many people, and our biggest threat to what's happening right now are people coming into the movement and trying to co-opt it for their own personal reasons. Our biggest threat right now is people coming in and trying to redirect the energy towards non-reform reforms, okay? People want something different right now. We need to make sure that they get something different. They want change. We need to make sure there is real change and not just some other added measure where we're going to train police so they don't be as racist as they used to be. That's not going to work. The police are on the defensive, which is amazing to me because that's what we've been trying to do for a long time, sort of the narrative that they don't create safety. They actually create harm. And people are seeing that, and this narrative is playing out all over the place now. And I just think we need to seize upon this also, because then we start talking about historically what are the role of police, right? I think about, okay, because the thing is that but people talk about, oh, okay, I mean, defunding police is cool, but let's think about policing, period. When we think about what policing is, period, we understand that we have to get rid of it. We need to get rid of it. That's the only real solution, okay? And so I think that when we start talking about policing and opening the conversation of what people are saying, you know, what is their role? What do they really do? You know, and get people to understand that we don't need them. We can keep each other safe. Okay? We can keep each other safe. We're not bringing us any safety. That's the thing that really is, is kind of like vexing me a little bit. It's just that I see all this energy and, I, and it's great. And it's actually, um, this thing is going further than I thought it would go right now. You know, my, my, my major concern is that, you know, we don't allow this to turn into a call for non-reform reforms. You don't take this energy and turn it, because this will be, people will be so disappointed. You know, they're coming out every night, they're coming out every day and they're protesting, they're expecting some change, and all they get is some cosmetic, you know, thing, oh yeah, we're gonna get some more training, we're gonna get some more body cams, you know, we're gonna do a national registry of events of assaults and stuff, okay, that's good enough. No. People want real deep systemic change. And we have to keep pressing for that. We really do. And I also want people to connect what's happening out in the streets to what's happening inside these prisons. You know, um, because if they're doing that out there with cameras and all that stuff, imagine what they're doing in here. So the uh, following program. So uh, it, I'm thinking to myself, what has he done? You know, they're terrorizing us. They control us. Uh, always put us in a situation with sub subhuman and dehumanizing us. And so we need to understand that it happens uh, there and here. And I don't understand what people think, how people are going to end up behaving if you've been treated like this for 10 years and they let you out in the world. What do you think that person going to behave like? You know, you know just, they don't understand that. You know, so it's, it's a really a, it's a complex situation right now. And um, being in here and watching it, I'm full of hope, full of hope that things will change. But at the same time, I'm concerned that um, that this energy doesn't get dissipated into some crazy non-change changes. You know, I don't want to see that happen. Well, let's talk about policing, period. Let's take it one step further. We're talking about taking a billion dollars away from their budget. Okay, but let's talk about the role of policing, period. See? And we haven't really got to that conversation where we say, well, police are, because they have this thing, police brutality. Well, police is always going to be brutal. It's violent work. You see what I'm saying? You can't make it nonviolent. There's no such thing as nonviolent policing. You know what I mean? And so we have to talk about what it is that they do. Not just the fact, okay, police are doing this, but what is it they do? The role that they play in our society. And we got to start questioning that and say, do we need this? Do we really need this? And who, who wants it? You know what I mean? Really 
So we'll end um, with some time for closing comments from each of you about um, sort of to Stevie's point, what, where do you see us in this current moment in terms of both promise and possible pitfalls and perhaps the importance of study um, in, in this current moment of uprisings? And then we'll move to our Q&A and we'll start with you, Rachel. All right. Um, I'm in a really hopeful place right now in terms of the movement for the abolition of the prison industrial complex. Um, I think there's, lot, there's a lot out there right now around which we should be pessimistic, and that's really hard and that people are struggling with. But I think the openings that we have right now to be able to um, try some different things out which is all I mean when I'm talking about experiments is the ability to try something new out that we haven't been given time to do before. Um, and that there's more of an appetite for us to do this trying out than there may have been previously. And, you know, that might just be my old tired behind, you know, thinking about the 1990s and what things were like then or whatever. But I do think that there are some openings. I'm not um, naive, I think, about where we are and how much we're up against. But I do think that we need to take as much advantage of the windows that we have right now and try a bunch of stuff out, try as much stuff out as possible. Um, I take Stevie's point around kind of who we pay attention to. And I think that that's actually one of the primary roles of um, study, of rigorous study, is also to understand who, who do we trust, whose kind of ideas and theories and analysis and experience do we trust? Um, and, you know, I, I happen to trust Miriam Kaba. I don't know who this other guy is that Stevie was referencing. But um, I also don't want us to get too caught up on, and I'm not suggesting Stevie was saying this, but I don't want us to get too caught up on, um, you know, having to be right or having to, you know, only have a handful of people um, be the trusted messengers. I think that there's room if we are going to build the kind of mass that we need to build to actually have some power. There's room for more of us to get in the boat. And I guess I would just ask you, if you're interested in getting in the boat, please come correct. Please like do the work to understand what the politics are. Please do the work to get out of your comfort zone. So if Community oversight is your jam and people are repeatedly telling you they don't think that we can eliminate police with community oversight. Can you think beyond that if you really have this goal? Um, but I do think that there's room for many more of us. And um, I want our movement to be as vibrant and as exciting and as welcoming as it can be, right? I steal from Tony K. Bambara all the time, but I'm gonna say it again, because I think it is important. We need to make our politics irresistible. Um, and that is not, you know, meant to be a slogan or a catchphrase or something. That's meant to be our practice. How do we make this the place people want to be? 
So that's where I think we're at right now and where we need to be. Derica, you want to follow that? <laughs> I shouldn't have posed it that way. Derica, would you follow that? <laughs> I will try. I will try. When Phoebe was talking about meeting we calls kids who are claiming to be abolitionists, but are not actually abolitionists. It actually made me think of Christianity and the type of people who I meet who call themselves Christians or the type of churches who I hear call themselves Christians. It's always interesting because it's like, that's not really like what, I don't say real Christians, but I don't take a lot of their work, the fruits of their labor to be Christ-like. You know, I wish people had a similar orientation on abolition because that would be a lot easier by someone who is sort of living among those spaces. It, it reminds me so much of it. So I feel like I'm used to having to contest the term and the politics because of all the practice I've had to do as someone who identifies as a Christian. Um, but what's exciting about contesting those terms is that for lots of people, I'm the only person who's a Christian abolitionist, who's anti-capitalist that they know, right? So then when they have someone come up in the church who's talking about, you know, we need more black police officers, I can say, no, 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 Jesus is anti-police. So it, it gives us it gives us new terrain to wage these conversations. And I, and I hope that you know, as more people become abolitionists, people who grapple and study the politics continue to push back and, and, to, and contest the term. I can't, what book was I reading? I can't remember the name of the book right now, but it was Manny Mirable's book, Maybe How Capitalism Underdeveloped America. And he has a 10-point program, at the, or not a 10-point program, but he has a list of thoughts at the end of this book. And one of the thoughts says, we don't need to make a bunch of people socialists. We need to make a lot of people excited or we need to make socialism popular. And so I hear part of what Rachel is saying in, about abolition. I don't know if our project is to go and evangelize the masses and have a bunch of abolitionist converts, but maybe it could be to pop popularize and make the politics irresistible. And that's something that's maybe easier than getting into one-on-one arguments with people about whether they are specifically abolitionists. I think that can be important. But I think what's more exciting is that 54% of Americans surveyed said that the police precinct in Minnesota was rightfully burned down after George Floyd's death. Do I think those 54% of people are abolitionists? No. Do I think those 54% of people believe that we should defund the police? No. But I do, do I think that them being excited about a police precinct burning down means something for abolition? Absolutely. So how do we take these societal moments where abolition is popular and push the politics further to the left, whether than just being so concerned about in one-on-one -on -one conversations, whether someone is an abolitionist or a Christian or a socialist? If that person is doing harmful things in the name of those politics, will they have to be caught in or caught out? Whatever movement people are using these days, because I can't I can't keep up with how we're calling. I think that's important. So I think the contestation is important, but I'm much more excited about the politics becoming popular rather than just the individuals.
Sorry, I couldn't unmute myself, but I was trying to say, Rukia, you're up. <laughs> um, yeah, no, thank you. Um, you know, I think um, Rachel and Derek really laid out the laid out the foundation. But what I'm just gonna say is that I think when we continue to talk about study and struggle and abolition, that one thing that stuck with me that Stevie said is that we keep us safe. And it's this concept and this understanding, this deep understanding that I think most folks have. I could be wrong, but I believe most folks have, at least most folks I've talked to. Even if they believe in police, they also believe that we keep us safe. And I think that that is true even inside of the carceral system. It's not the guards inside that protect folks. It's other folks who are incarcerated that protect each other. And when we're out here in the communities, we keep us safe. We create the systems of accountability that we need to see and to prevent harm from happening in the first place. And so as we continue to engage and study, I want us to study how we have kept us safe in the past and to really engage in those deep conversations that Rachel talked about earlier that is a part of our political education and our study to figure out how we began to create new ideas and new ways to experiment with what safety looks like when we're in control of it as community. So that, that, that's what I'll leave us on, is this idea that we keep us safe. So. Thank you, Rukia. So we have um, a lot of questions, not a lot of time. So my strategy here is I'm gonna read a couple of these that I feel like touch on new areas and then just let you kind of in the same format choose which one you want to respond to. Um, so one of these is, um, have any of you studied something that was so overwhelming that you felt incapable of action and how did you overcome that experience? Another one is how do you respond to people who don't see lived experience as a credible form of knowledge or value? And the last one is um, a bit longer. The disability community often expresses fear over being left behind by abolitionists of desire for independent living, not being centered as it should be rather than, quote, being taken care of. As a disabled person myself, I struggle to articulate the difference between community care and being taken care of to other disabled folks. So do any of the speakers have ideas for language and phrasing that would help with that? So Rachel, you can feel free to take any of those. All right, those are really interesting questions, all of them. Um, I think I will start with overwhelm, which is to say, yes, the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> I have studied things that have felt overwhelming to me. Um, and you know, I mean, some of the things that I think are the most important to my political development have seemed overwhelming to me, right? So understanding history of race and racism. You know, I, I did formal study on that 
that got me so overwhelmed. There were some days I couldn't get out of bed. Um, I think learning about, you know, capitalism is overwhelming. And I think understanding each of those things um, and their relationship to each other, but I'll take them separately, is um, essential to the politics that I have, but also to me being able to live the kind of life that I want to live. So if I'm committed to living in a way that is not completely under the boot of you know, some white oppressor, then I need to understand those things. And, you know, that's, I think, the same with um, learning about, and this isn't, um, you know, book study, but this is kind of the day-to-day conversation that we've been talking about as a totally legitimate way to learn, learning about the conditions that people are living under in prisons across the United States and being in um, communication with imprisoned people um, in many states, as I was for years and years, that is totally overwhelming and makes you not want to act. And I think a kind of political commitment is what keeps me going. And you know, I think to Derricka's point, we develop that political commitment, right? Most of us don't have the luxury, luxury, uh, the good fortune, maybe I'll say, of growing up in the Lumumba family to being kind of like out the womb into radicalism, right? Most of us need to develop that. Um, and, you know, I think having that kind of I'm not going to say North Star just because I feel like that's getting overused too. And I want to save that for good stuff. Um, But having that kind of pull, that kind of really, really deep pull to want to transform our conditions helps me stay committed. And also, I think, um, helps me understand that I need to do the work that helps me stay committed. And what that means in my case, and people learn differently, so I'm not sure what works for everyone. But in my case, what that means is um, breaking things into chunks. That means not trying to understand the entire history of capitalism, (laughs) you know, overnight or through one class, or I'm just gonna sit down and read Capital by myself, for instance, right? Which I hear lots of people do. They're like, I wanna understand capitalism. So I'm going to read capital, right? But understanding, I think, chunk by chunk, and to give yourself some patience with that too, I think, to understand like, okay, these are building blocks. I'm going to have to figure out how to put them together in a way that um, helps me understand the bigger thing, gives you something to move through and gives you something to grow into. You know, the same with racism, as I was talking about before, right? So I don't need to read every single terrible thing that was ever done to Black people, right? Even though that's kind of the formal academic practice, right? Read all of this literature and then be able to comment on all of this literature. And in that case, all this literature was history of, you know, sociology and anthropology, which has been just remarkably bad to black people, devastating, deathly to black people. Um, 
So it's maybe not read all of those things, but it's to say, okay, let me figure out, and this might be in conversation with somebody who I respect and trust. Let me figure out what's a chunk, what's a good starter chunk that helps me build from there, right? I mean, I think it's the same way in some ways that we think about having, um, doing abolitionist organizing, right? If we can't get rid of every single prison or every single cop today, which again, I'm never against. If we can do that, let's do that today. But if we can't, then what is a meaningful chunk that moves us further toward the horizon of what we want and doesn't mean that we got to go back and then relearn or re-tear down or whatever the going back would be, right? What gets us one step further toward our goal. And I think that's one way to approach study um, when it's kind of overwhelming. That was long-winded, so I'll I'll only respond to that one. Thank you, Rachel. We're going to let interpretation take a brief pause and then finish with Derica and Rikia. Are we good to go? Yeah, we're good. Okay. Okay. Initially, it was abolition as my so overwhelming. What about the murderers? What about all of that? That was my one of my initial things um, that I felt like it was just too impossible, too large, too unrealistic. All the things I've, I've written about. Since then, there's been so many new ones, and I'm always trying to figure out how to do what Rachel said and to break things down and to learn them with other people and in chunks. The most recent one has been climate change. When people talk about abolition and other people sort of freeze up because it feels overwhelming, I get a deep sense of anxiety when I hear climate change, global warming, climate crisis. And it wasn't until I read The Uninhabitable Earth that it, it I could actually have some sort of grasp of the concept, some sort of grasp on what does one degree of warming mean versus two degrees versus three and then four. And if it gets to four, how terrible it is. So the book is very, very sad, but it, it I think it's an explainer. It, it helped me to understand the nature of the problem. Um, yeah, what source of interventions we can take to stop it. So reading, asking questions, learning in very, very tiny bite-sized chunks. Because everything you're taught about, at least everything I was taught about climate change and environmentalism has all just been dismantled. You learn that the plastics industry is behind recycling and you're just like, what happened to reduce, reuse, recycle? This is, isn't this what we're supposed to do? And then you learn that, oh, this is actually a way for them to justify to continue making more plastic. None of it has ever stopped producing plastic. So then you have to rethink that you thought that you were progressive on recycling. You've been saving your cereal boxes, when actually you have to do way more than that if you're going to try to save the planet. And so climate change has been something I've been really trying to study and develop an analysis around because it's... The, the planet is going to be abolished if we don't if we don't figure out how to save it soon enough. And so I, I, I've been trying to take that on. The question around 
disability also is now one of the conversations that I've been trying to definitely learn a lot more. And that started in law school. So when the Movement for Black Lives initially released their policy platform, the journal that I was editor of, we did a call for like papers um, to, to see how people were using the policy platform and their organizing and their teaching. And in our call for papers, we received a lot of responses that were critiques of the InfraBL platform through a disability analysis. And so we, I was so excited to be able to publish those critiques because the first time that I read any sort of critique of InfraBL in a way that was actually pushing them to be more inclusive instead of just of like a lot of the ridiculous critiques. And since then, you know, InfraBL has gone through iterations of improving and updating the policy platform to include that analysis. But it was the first time I was reading about autism and disability and death and hard of hearing in relationship to police violence and prison violence. And it was, I mean, quite remarkable how though that that journal has definitely helped to shape my politics around disability. But it's something I know I still have to learn about and around. And so the question, the fear rather, of the abolitionist movement leaving people who have a disability justice practice or framework behind, one thing I try to think about, you know, who are the people who are disability justice advocates who are in abolitionist spaces? Because they're not left behind. They're there. They're there. Groups like her, Harriet Tubman Collective, the people who are currently signing this this event, right? Who do you look to? Who you read? Who you turn to? Um, so, I was a shameless plug for that journal. It came out in 2017. You can read some of the critiques there, and then you can go read the updated InfraBL policy platform to see how it's been incorporated. And hopefully, there'll be much more of that. And what was the last question? There was the overwhelm, the disability justice, and what was the third question? Um, how do you respond to people who don't see lived experience as a credible form of knowledge or value? How do I respond to people? It depends on the people. It depends on, honestly, it depends on the person. Because I've, how do I say this? I am finding that there's not a one size fit all to lots of these conversations, right? So there are some people, for example, who only care about directly impacted people and their lived experiences if it serves their goals of moderate reforms. So they only want you to hear about people who are directly impacted to say, we want community policing, or we want to build several new jails instead of to close them. And so then you have people who care about you know, people's lived experiences informing the, the policy or the law or the panel or the book, but it's usually as an attempt to undermine radical, progressive, or abolitionist aims. And so I have much more to say to those people than I do to people who don't value, um, you know, people's lived experiences. I think maybe I've just been lucky in the last few years where I've seen a political shift to like absolutely trying to center people's lived experiences. Now, I'm not in the funding spaces and I would be surprised if the money also follows the people with lived experiences. And when it does, I almost guess that it 
again, goes to people who have moderate. It's not to the Stevie Wilsons of the world, right? It's not. It's not to Mumia. The, the, no, there's no directly impacted conversation around Mumia Abu Jamal. There's no. It's right. So it depends on whose lived experiences get centered, and the ones that are most vocal right now, or you know, the people who have opportunities right now to push the conversation. And so I maybe would let Rakia answer that because I'm still formulating a lot of thoughts about it. Yeah, Rakia, we'll let you. We're over time, so I want to thank our audience um, for sticking with us, and we'll let Rakia have the last word. All right, I'll try to be quick. Um, I'm sorry, but you know, I don't have an answer to that question because, because to be quite honest, I I still am working on. <sighs> dealing with my frustration around people who do not really believe in or censor um, people with living experience. And so I don't think that I can have an unbiased or a fair response to that right now. Um, most of the folks I work with have experienced the, the trauma, the horrific treatment, and just like serious, you know, including myself in many ways um, outside of the carceral system, but just you know, state violence. And so um, I just don't have a really positive response to that right now. Um, and so I'm going to hold off on answering that question. Um, I do. And I recognize that I'm going to grow in that moment, like and grow around how to answer that. Um, I will say that um, in terms of, uh, I do want to just real quickly, I'm sorry. I'm so much I want to respond to when we realized time was out. I literally, you know, like it's just my, <laughs> my mindset a little bit. Um, but one of the things I do want to just lift up is I do want to, again, lift up the Harriet Tubman Project. I want to lift up Herd. I want to lift up all of those organizations that have really pushed the movement for Black Lives, for us to really um, push a disability justice framework. And also for all of those folks who have really pushed us to also um, recognize um, our trans experiences and value and need to ensure that we are also centering trans lives as well. And so, you know, like, I just want to really like make sure that I, I state that because it's not the movement for black lives. We're made up of hundred and over 150 organizations. So every time we're learning, that means you have 150 other organizations and entity and people that are also learning and experiencing and shifting our politics locally to ensure that we're including um, conversation around um, those very, very important siblings of our communities. So, um, you know, so that's really important. I wanted to mention that. Um, I, to the first question around, I don't even remember what the first question is anymore. <laughs> I don't got so thrown off. You're okay. So if you want to end with this one, it's have, when have you studied something that you were overwhelmed by and how did you sort of um, overcome? Thank you. That was the first question. Okay. Yes. You know, honestly, studying the law in law school, studying the law was overwhelming for me because I was so disappointed in U.S. law and policy. Like the entire system is ridiculous. And how we interpret it, the process of interpretation. Like when I say I truly felt that I was entering a space of no opportunity to actually find 
justice and humanity for anyone. Like I was just blown away. I was shocked. I thought that at least by going to law school, I would somehow open the door to some like, you know, amazing information that was being used inappropriately. No, the whole system is messed up. Whole philosophy, right? Like, I mean, I, I just was just shocked by that. And so that was overwhelming for me. What gave me hope was actually the things I read outside of law school. It was the conversations I had outside of law school. It was this movement around abolition as a practice that actually gave me hope um, and studying other forms of government and other systems of justice that actually gave me hope. And so, um, yeah, that, that's what was overwhelming for me. And that's how I overcame it too, is our people. So I'll end there. Thank y'all so much. I also yeah. want to thank T.L. Lewis who actually has really, um, has, is a disability justice advocate and Valissa Thompson, who are two disability justice advocates who have really helped me and guided me um, in my own development around those issues. I just want to shout them out too. To say a yeah. So thank you to the whole herd team um, and everyone on this call. The audience, you can't see all the stuff behind the scenes. There's like 12 people on this call. And, and I appreciate every single one of them, especially Rachel, Rukia, Derica. Thank you so much for, I always feel like an interloper getting to spend a couple hours with all of you. So um, thank you so much for making time and for everyone tuning in. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.